Hi. Hello, how are you? Hello. Should we tell the truth? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, this is hard. They made me cry. Couldn't imagine talking about it. It's how we feel. <laughs> the thing is, it comes from the heart. And it is also worth it. podcast. I'm your host Sarah and today we'll be speaking with Barry Sierra on the topic of domestic violence. Now at this stage I'd like to give a trigger warning. Some of the topics we discussed today may be upsetting to people as they touch on violence and control in relationships. Before we begin I'd like to give an acknowledgement of country to the elders past present and emerging on whose land we meet today. And I will start off by introducing Barry, where he can give us a little bit of background and tell us the pronouns that he prefers. Welcome, Barry. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Uh, you know, it's quite, it can be quite a heavy topic. So as much as I'd love to say I'm happy to be here, I recognise that what we're talking about can be quite hectic sometimes. But uh, in terms of my pronoun, I go with he, I... Talk a bit about my background. I had, you know, you can hear from the accent. I'm originally from South Africa, and you know, I started off when I finished my training back in South Africa. I started off in two jobs that I worked part time across both, and the one was as a trauma counselor, and I was working a lot with, um, you know, paramedics, policemen, people who had experienced a lot of trauma through the line of their work, and then I'd been seeing a lot of victims of crime. But the other half of the job that I was doing was family and relationship counselling. And I started to notice this crossover that so many of the families that I was seeing, there was such trauma that they were experiencing. And kind of fast forward from there, I sort of ended up doing a lot of work in trauma. That became an area that I just found myself working in. And, you know, over the years, having worked with trauma and done a lot of work with adults, I worked a lot with adults that had been survivors of you know, childhood trauma, sexual assault, really tough stuff. And what I came to realize is just how important early intervention work really is. You know, I'd seen people who had only disclosed what they had been through in later in life, 30s, 40s, 50s. And by that time, they had been through so much because of, because of their experiences when they were younger. That led me to this idea that if I can choose the space that I want to be in, I want to be able to work in that early intervention space where if we can do some valuable work at that time, it can change the trajectory of somebody's life. So you're right in saying that the topic we're about to discuss today isn't very light. Mm. Um, I'm hoping to get some light and shade from you mm. based on the experience that you've had. Mm. Um, and from talks we've had off air, I understand that you have worked with perpetrators of DV. Yep. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like to work with them. Yeah, I've, you know, I've, it's been interesting in my work that I've worked on both sides of the coin. I've worked with victims as well as perpetrators and sometimes at the same time. And there's very different dynamics that I've found. Um, part of sort of practice of getting into working with perpetrators that I had to work hard to overcome is that initial judgment that I might have, that bias that I might have in working with a perpetrator. And 
it takes a bit of work to sort of take that label of perpetrator off and try and see this person, this perpetrator as a person. Uh, you know, so there's that initial heart dynamic even from the beginning where you, you, you fall into the trap of, am I seeing this person purely through a lens of what they've done? What, what behavior happened here? What pattern happened here? So working with perpetrators, it, it can be really tricky. It can be a really tricky space to work in. But I find that as I'm able to try and go into that, understand that that person as a whole, try to understand what might have contributed towards all of this and see them as a person in addition to what they've done, work with them to understand taking responsibility for some of that behavior, taking responsibility for what happened. But really I find that working with perpetrators, you've got to be able to sit in that zone, in that gray space of being able to take a very broad look at this person and their whole life. Because often, if we just focused on that incident or that series of incidents that might have happened, we're seeing them only through one length. And we've got to sort of expand on that. Because in some cases, you know, perpetrators like victims, they've got a healing process to go through. And if we can tap into that, if we can include a perpetrator, a perpetrator where it's safe and appropriate to do so, if we can include a perpetrator in that process of healing and safety, then that's an important thing because we can't solve this problem unless we're including the perpetrator who's part of this problem in that, in that whole process. So, you know, that's kind of, that's the long version, but it's definitely, it's definitely challenging in the beginning to work with perpetrators. It takes, it takes time to try and get past the defense that that perpetrator might put up, as well as uh, you know, have the flexibility in your own practice to kind of be able to sit with some of the discomfort of knowing what that person's done and having to still try and work and see their life as a whole, see them more than just the behavior. When you say they have a kind of guard up when they're speaking to you, yeah. what ways do they minimize their crimes against their victim? What things have you heard them say? Yeah, look, I think that's, that's often the biggest part. And what I find is a lot of times working with perpetrators, in some, in some cases they voluntar voluntarily decided to, to reach out for some support, but in a lot of cases they're referred by community corrections or they're referred by court. So they, in that initial setting, they're sitting there with a lot of reservations about this process. I agree that often it is minimized, you know, you might hear people say it wasn't as big as she's making it out to be, or, uh, you know, it wasn't my fault, I was pushed to do that. So there are lots of times where I think either what happened is minimized, it's made to be a smaller issue than it actually was. And sometimes only that information comes out over time, you know, where you actually get a bit of information outside of what the per perpetrator might have said that you realize, wow, there's actually a lot more to it. And sometimes over time that'll come out as well. But it is a, it is a big challenge when a person is sitting there that they have been told that they have to be there and they've got their sort of defenses up and they guard up about that. You know, for some perpetrators, underneath that might be a lot of shame about the process. And for some perpetrators, they might not have always had the best experiences uh, either for them or their family of engaging with services. So there's, 
an additional layer of why they might feel guarded about the whole process of being there. Um, but certainly it, it, it takes a bit of work to try and get through that, uh, that minimizing because it is, it's often an indicator for me that this person, how ready are they to address their behavior? Have they taken responsibility and have they recognized that, uh, that what they did, that pattern of behavior or that incident, uh, had really significant consequences for everyone involved. And I've seen it in cases where, through talking about what happened, um, you know, you've seen someone come to this realization that what I did could have killed this person and you just completely break down as that kind of penny drops. You know, what is going on here? What have I done? Uh, and th that's, you know, that's part of that process of starting to take some responsibility and starting to pivot towards a different way of doing things. But certainly it's a big challenge working with perpetrators is that in most cases, they're not there voluntarily. You mentioned um, off, off um, recording that the period of time after a victim leaves their perpetrator is a really key time for both the perpetrator and the victim. Yeah. Um, it's a dangerous time, but it's also a time where things can be implemented and, and potentially um, things can move forward. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm. Uh, it is, it's an interesting time that because if you look at the, the time that a victim leaves the perpetrator, the victim's often in the highest risk there for some sort of retaliation, some act of aggression towards them. So, you know, ensuring that there's a sense of safety for that person, whatever that looks like, is critical. But, you know, I, in, in my own experience of working with perpetrators, and this might not be true generally across all populations, but certainly in my experience, the window of opportunities often come around where there's been some ramification to the behavior. So this has led to police, this has led to court matters, this has led to, you know, ADOs, these sorts of things that for some people, and it's not going to be true for all perpetrators, but certainly some perpetrators, it becomes this moment of realization that what am I doing? How did, how did it get to this point? I'm here, I'm at court, I'm spending all this money on legal fees, I can't see my kids, I've hurt someone that I love. There's this real moment of something's gotta be different. And I think in terms of our intervention to be able to work with perpetrators that are willing to do the work, that can be a, a critical time. Because if you intervene then and you're able to provide the therapeutic and practical support to around that time, you know, it can change the trajectory of that ongoing behavior. And um, so, you know, there's both. There's that, that period of an incident or post that incident, and if someone leaves, it can be risky for the victim, but equally it can be an opportunity to work with perpetrators because in some cases they're kind of ready to, they're ready for the help. They're ready to try and do something about it. There's an old saying that a victim of family violence, domestic violence, leaves and returns the situation seven times before leaving for good. Yeah. Is that true? And if it is, why is that the case? 
Yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that one too, and it, I I think that's definitely the case. I think it's very 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 common that when a victim has been subjected to that pattern of power and control, that pattern of behaviour, they don't just leave on the first occasion. And it, you know, one of the kind of common myths that you often hear when talking about domestic violence is that if it was so bad, why didn't you just leave? And it's it's far too simplistic to look at it that way because. In most scenarios, when a person is preparing themselves or they're kind of making this decision, and I don't want this for my life, I, need, I, I want to get away from this, they turn to look at where they're going to go, and even that can sometimes look dark, because there might be how do they access accommodation, how are they going to fund this life, and particularly in, pat in patterns where the violence has been over a period of time and there's been a lot of coercion, a lot of uh, controlling behavior, you might find the person wants to leave but they've got no access to the things that they need to leave. You know, identity documents, money, their social support might have been restricted over time. They might not have the means to do that. And so being able to go is faced with its own stresses and anxieties. And in some scenarios, you might have children involved. And sometimes the victims say, I can't leave with my children. Where would we go? What would that be like? Or I stay here for the well-being and safety of the children. Because then at least they're safe and I, I take the brunt of this behavior. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. And it can be a very difficult time for people, particularly with limited resources, because that has been part of that pattern of behavior. Or, oh, you know, for, for people that uh, have come to live in Australia from other countries that are maybe not familiar with the infrastructure, have limited family supports, have limited social supports, you know, never mind language abilities, access to resources, the inequality of all of that. Um, there are many, many reasons why it's very difficult for a victim to leave an abusive relationship. And I think the, the hardest part about that is sometimes if a person's left and come back and maybe has done that more than once, there's this kind of cumulative impact of, I can't, I've heard people say to me, I couldn't even get that right. I couldn't even do that right. So there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of self-blame. There's a lot of guilt sometimes about this, um, which again, over time then, has a big impact on their well-being um, and that's often part of that pattern of, of behavior and the perpetrator will say you see you couldn't live without me you had to come back to me and so it just replicates this kind of belief about themselves belief about their place in this world and so it's it's very common it's very common you often hear this the, the relationship was on and off it was on and off uh, and that speaks to that difficulty, I think. It's not just violence in terms of hitting, though, is it? There's lots of other parts of family violence that come under that umbrella. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I suppose speaking to this idea of kind of common myths around, around DV, I think that is exactly one of them, that DV is generally just physical violence perpetrated by a man to a woman. I think that's... That's way off. Often physical violence 
is the most acute end because it's when it gets physical that's when we see you know someone ending up in hospital severely injured or even in the worst case scenario they don't survive that but that's just that acute end i think what's far more destructive is the other forms that we see and so in that dynamic if we look to dv as being this pattern of behavior this pattern of taking control and power within a relationship physical violence is just a very it's a small part you know so you look to the components that are often far more destructive would be your kind of emotional psychological abuse and that might be descriptions about that person you know you're nothing without me you look terrible so really sort of grinding a person down eroding their sense of worth that is far more destructive i find uh, but you know if we look at it there's financial abuse sexual abuse you know, within that you can look at forms of elder abuse abuse against people with a disability with technology we have technological abuse there's so many different forms that make it up uh, and often it's a combination of all of that because if through restricting someone's finances being verbally aggressive to them uh, restricting their access to their support their friends family all of that often is happening and then we just see at the end there's a bit there might be physical violence as well but often it's all of that that's more destructive i think in my work with victims what i've often seen is yes there might have been physical violence but in in some senses that becomes less important than what the impact of them on an emotional and psychological level was they can kind of cope with the fact that it was physical they kind of compartmentalize it can deal with that but it's the impact of the emotional abuse over time that's so destructive that sense of a complete lack of uh, self-worth the guilt the shame that's come with that which it shouldn't be the case but that has been the the outcome of an extended period of time of being subjected to this power and control and i find that far more destructive so Yes, physical violence is a part of domestic violence, but it would be a myth to assume that just because it's physical, that's DV right there. There's actually far more. It's far broader than that, and uh, and and often it's it's lots of different elements of DV that are all happening at the same time. And uh, you know, I think often talking with men and talking with perpetrators, there's often times where. They don't even realize that that would fall under the banner of what we we might call DV, in terms of just manipulation, comments about what the other person looks like, how they're behaving, to kind of mold them to a version of what the perpetrator wants them to be. Uh, you know, they wouldn't, off the top of their head, think that oh, that's not DV, but it it is is a huge form of it because it's about exercising that control over the person, and then the impact that that has on them. I feel like there's a an education part in this for both perpetrators and victims but also for us as practitioners what we can do what we can look out for how big a part does education play in stopping domestic violence in Australia Yeah you know it's it's a complex issue it's a it's a highly complex issue and that's why we don't have any clear solutions to what it looks like because it's operating on so many different levels 
but I do think that equipping people with the skills very broadly of understanding the dynamics and how to observe incidences where there might be DV within a relationship is a skill that we can build and develop. You know, and I, I've heard from clients that I've worked with who went to someone of authority and tried to disclose what happened and even that was minimized. Like, what did you expect? You know, you, you asked for it. You hardly knew that person and you moved in with them. You know, really sort of terrible thing for someone to hear who's at this point of trying to get a bit of help. And often when people are, you know, first sort of going into it, they're not going to sit down and say, you know, I'm, I'm currently exposed to domestic violence. It's happening like this, this and this. It comes out in different ways. You know, we might look for um, elements of how is a person's mental health affected? How are they coping with their drug and alcohol components? Do they have access to finances? What does their support network like? But I think often the first way is to enter into conversations with a person about it. And I think that's such a critical part of that process is if we're expecting a person who's been a victim of domestic violence to step forward, disclose and drive that whole process, we're putting a lot on a person that's already under a lot. I think it's beholden on us to take that step towards them. And simple questions, do you feel safe at home? Is there anything that happens in that environment that makes you feel afraid? So I think opening a space that's encouraging the person or giving the person the opportunity to disclose it if they wanted to is in itself a very powerful act. If we can do that in a warm, supportive, empathetic way, safe way. Because then we're, we're kind of opening this door that I can hear this, I can hold this with you, and I can work with you to do something about this. But I would always be encouraging people to look at what might be happening in a person's life, that whether it be their physical health, mental well-being, drug and alcohol, those are often these indicators, these markers that we would see uh, that can you know, suggest that something might be happening. But equally, you, know, uh, you can kind of informally be gathering that information around looking at what is their communication like. Do they have access to be able to communicate freely with people? Do they have access to money? Who's responsible for that within the household? There's all these sort of things that might come up through discussions that we have about it. But I think it's really important that if there is something that we think, oh, something's not lining up here, that we're not just putting that on the victim and expecting them to bring it to us. That it's very powerful to be able to sort of meet them where they are and ask those questions um, and, and allow them to be able to respond. What are some of the differences that you've experienced in um, working with perpetrators and working with victims? Mm. I think you touched on that a, a bit earlier in one of your questions is that often in the beginning working with perpetrators, uh, you know, they don't necessarily see their, their behaviour as problematic or they're really minimising it or they're not taking the responsibility for what happened and saying I played a role in it. This happened because she said this or she, 
you know, she drank too much and she actually assaulted me. I'm the victim. So, you know, in my experience often with perpetrators at that initial, in the beginning, those initial points of contact, uh, you know, they're often sort of closed down. You know, they're not, uh, they won't sort of openly express what happened. And that's not always true, of course. There are occasions where, where people do, but uh, certainly in the beginning, you've kind of got to chip away at that. You know, they're, they're maybe not ready, not willing, or, uh, you know, not understanding the full extent of, of what they've done. When it comes to working with victims, you know, I, I found that... That was a big sigh, Barry. That was a big sigh. That was a big sigh, and, you know, I, I kind of, as I sit here and I'm noticing what happens for me I kind of see some of the faces I've seen you know you, you you're often meeting someone who's just been through absolute hell you know real terror and often they're feeling like my life is broken into a million different parts you know I my sense of myself my sense of what my life would have looked like to in comparison to what it feels like it is now you know they 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 have been through through a real lot so for me in that space i look to that relational component too often i think we we look for techniques and strategies and different therapeutic approaches and you know we're trying to fit people into these models of this is the type of therapy and it some of those are valuable, of course, but, uh, but I think when it comes to that, we need to focus on the relational component of the work that we do. If we look towards an understanding of trauma, a huge part of that trauma and the healing process is in relationship. It's in a sense of safety. So for me, in those initial stages of therapy, that's what I'm looking to do. I want that person to know that all of them is welcome in that space. And in the work that you're doing with victims, it often starts with that, creating a sense of safety within the therapeutic environment, creating a sense of safety often within themselves. And for people who have been through a trauma of a domestic violence relationship, but also might have been subjected to previous trauma, to intergenerational trauma, there's not much safety and there maybe hasn't been safety that they've ever known. So we're working towards trying to gain a, that sense of safety for themselves uh, on a relational and an internal kind of level. And then having to work with things that you mentioned earlier, that sense of shame, that sense of uh, self-worth that's just been eroded over time. It's been subtle. And I think I mentioned to you before we sat down to do this that there's been occasions where people say, I, I, I don't know how I let this happen to myself. You know, I was a strong person. How could I let this have happened? And, uh, you know, so it's part of trying to overcome all of that and, you know, open up a, a, a new way of doing things, a new way of looking at things, uh, helping people to tie into things that build them up again. Um, and, you know, it's amazing how there's been times where I've worked with victims and these little wins that they've had, you know, it's like, oh, I got my ID stuff back. 
I got my I got part of myself back through doing that. I enrolled in a course. I was never allowed to do that. I was never allowed to study. I was never allowed to work. I just couldn't do that. You know, being able to to connect to things that then can be really empowering, I think is really critical. Uh, that's I feel like it's a bit slightly long-winded version, but there are there are definite differences in working with victims and perpetrators at that point of contact and uh, and trying to navigate both of those uh, you know it can be it can be challenging oh it's heavy mm-hmm. social factors like being aboriginal being queer being from a core background i don't know that we have the stats around that yet but how does that change a victim in a dv situation mm. I, no i think it's i think it's an it's a really interesting question when you look at it and and, and statistics aside for a second now the interesting part about domestic violence is that it doesn't discriminate you see domestic violence across all cultures across all genders across all ages it, domestic violence is global it's universal but what what suddenly we need to look at is that yes it might happen everywhere but in individual populations there's different dynamics at play and that becomes important so if you look at an individual who we might be very quick to judge because of, of what they present with in that moment you know there could be you know drug and alcohol it could even be their appearance it could be you know the way they speak they tend to be pretty rough around the edges so to speak you know. but if we look through the lens of someone that might have been exposed to a lot of trauma in their life and intergenerational trauma going back a long, long way, we need to have that lens when we're looking at working with those people because we understand that there are biological and neurological impacts of that trauma. If we look towards the research on it, we know that people have experienced trauma early in life, or people have been subjected to intergenerational trauma, there's an impact on them. There's an impact on their patterns of attachment. There's an impact on their uh, impact uh, socially, in terms of their networks of people. There's an impact on mental health. There's all these component parts that influence that. And if you've grown up in trauma and you've seen it, what is the impact, what is the blueprint for your life for relationships? How do you view relationships? When you yourself, when you were younger, you saw that same thing playing out. Or you were actually exposed to it yourself. What does that teach you about what it's like to be in a relationship? And what impact does that have on your beliefs about the justification of violence in relationships, the use of violence in relationships? So I think that kind of trauma-informed lens, which we talk about a lot, is so critical to understanding why this might be playing out. Because if we judge a person just on what's, on what's happened, it's very easy to vilify that. If we look across what's happened in their life, they have experienced traumas and what the impact of that has been over a generation or in their life 
It can create a different way of seeing things. But equally with the queer community, with the cold community, there's specific challenges that they might face. So for example, in the queer community, you might see a potential coercive control is to say, if you don't do what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna out you to everyone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell your work colleagues, I'm gonna tell your family. And boom, suddenly this, this pattern is in place because there's the threat of coercion and control. Equally with cold communities, you come over, you're in this country, I will inform people about your visa. I can change that. You can't access money because I've got everything. So there's individual challenges in a sense across different communities, even though the experience of domestic violence might be true for all of them, but there's individual challenges within each different population. And I think you know, that becomes particularly important when you're planning support and services for each community because you've got to kind of take into account what some of those challenges could be. What is something that can be life-changing for a domestic violence victim? You know, I took a big sigh earlier <laughs> and you know I, I think part of that big sigh is you know, when I've been fortunate enough to do a bit of therapy with victims and we've been able to see each other for a while and we kind of get to the end of a bit of a process and we look back at what it was like for them. It's very rarely as if like, oh, it was that schema therapy technique you did, it was great. What so often happens is it to talks to the relationship. You know, it was that I came in here and I could speak without judgment. I came in here and I felt safe here. I knew you were listening to me and I knew you wanted to support me for something better. And I think the most life-changing thing for someone that's experienced that is to be provided with a space that is completely non-judgmental, completely trusting, and places that person's story as with a lot of respect and trust and, and importance. Because that person might have been through hell before they're sitting there before you. And I think the most life-changing thing that we can do is to hold that person um, you know, with a sense of, of kind of, the word that just popped into my head was almost with a sense of kind of love, you know, you really got to hold that. And I think when there's been scenarios where I've heard someone disclose DV and they might have tried to do it in the past and that was met with, um, with not a very good response, um, that can also be really destructive because it was like I tried to reach out and that person didn't even listen to me so why would I do it again you can kind of get that and if I think what can be so life-changing for the work that we do is in being able to allow that person to speak about what's happened to them to be able to really you know, it's, it seems like such a simple thing and we talk about it all the time but that kind of active listening is a real thing, you know. We're really attuned to what the person's saying. We're really hearing them. And they know that. I think that in itself can be a really powerful first moment for them. There's often a lot of work to do thereafter. But I think in terms of that first step of being able to do that, 
that in itself can be a life-changing process. That there's people here that support me, that back me up, that trust me, and they can put in place a plan for me that allows me to try and be saved and that allows me to see a life beyond everything that I've been through. And I think that it's easy said, it's more difficult to do, but I think that process can be life-changing for, for a victim because it's a new trajectory for their life. It's pivoting to something different, something more. Thank you. Well, to steal some of your words to finish off, thank you for holding space here with me today. Um, really appreciate your time and your expertise. Not a very nice subject, but it's been nice to talk through some of the stuff that goes with it. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Care South podcast today. If anything has triggered you, head to our website, caresouth.org.au forward slash the Care South podcast for helpline information, along with show notes, resources, and previous episodes. <laughs>